Welcome back, everybody. Uh, this is episode number three, You Make Me Sick. As always, I'm your host, Andrew Stewart. Uh, today, we're going to be discussing a pretty well-known microorganism. Uh, we're going to be discussing salmonella. Uh, we will not be discussing the salmonella that most people are familiar with, uh, the one that's found usually in common with foodborne illness. We're actually going to be talking about uh, salmonella called salmonella enterocai. Uh, you'd better know it as typhoid fever. It should be noted before we get started, there are a couple of different types of typhoid. Uh, there's one called paratyphoid, caused by a different type of salmonella. This is salmonella paratyphoid, uh, paratyphi, uh, but we won't be discussing that. Uh, paratyphoid fever, usually less dangerous than the regular typhoid fever, but still prevalent today, uh, as is typhoid fever, which we will discuss. Uh, so typhoid, uh, caused by the bacteria salmonella enterocai. Uh, it's been responsible for uh, many, many deaths uh, all over the world. Uh, in the last hundred years or so, it has actually become far, far less fatal just due to better sanitation and just uh, the world kind of expanding and being able to get cleaner drinking water and just better hand hygiene overall. Uh, 1929, or I'm sorry, 1829, uh, it was a French bacteriologist, Pierre Louis, who was actually the first to coin the term typhoid fever. Uh, this is identified lesions <clears throat> excuse me, in the abdominal lymph nodes on patients that had died from a gastric fever. Uh, the term was derived from the Greek word typhus, which meant smoky, and it was used to describe the delirium that patients would exhibit with the disease. Uh, even though it was kind of first described in the early 1800s, it wasn't until the late 1800s, 1880, when it was actually, they found the organism that caused typhoid fever and were able to actually give it a name. Uh, it was actually German pathologist Karl Eberth who identified Salmonella enterocai. Uh, it was first cultured in 1884, and then several years later, they actually developed a vaccine for the disease. Uh, but even despite this vaccine, it still ran rampant uh, over a large swath of the world for many, many years after that. Uh, it's still considered a worldwide public health epidemic. It's uh, endemic in many countries, uh, usually third world countries that don't have access to clean sanitation or clean drinking water. Uh, so Salmonella enterica in and of itself, the serotype is a gram-negative, rod-shaped, flagellated bacterium, which means it has kind of like little, little flagella arms that help it move around. And the only known reservoir for this bacteria is actually the human body. So if you're wondering, how does Salmonella actually enter the body? So as we all know, uh, usually when you hear about Salmonella, it's related to some kind of ingestion, uh, and then people get sick after that, uh, gastrointestinal disease, and same way with uh, typhoid fever. So it actually enters via the small bowel or small intestine, and it can either be direct penetration into the epithelial tissue or via the M cell. Uh, if you're asking what the M cell is, it's actually a special lymphoid epithelial cell. So we have these little lymph cells that do help us out, a uh, big part of our immune system. Uh, unfortunately, with this typhoid, uh, once it's inside the submucosa, the bacteria actually causes excessive growth of these things called Peyer's patches. These are also areas in the small intestine that are uh, really important for just as far as uh, the immune system. They're uh, considered a lymph tissue, uh, similar to just if you think about really small little lymph nodes that kind of line these pyre patches inside your small intestine, and that's how uh, typhoid actually sets in. So 
once in there, the disease is actually able to spread throughout the entire lymphatic system, and that's how it becomes a systemic issue within the body. Uh, one thing that's kind of unique with typhoid is their ability to actually get into macrophages. Uh, these macrophages, as we've talked about before, are part of your immune system, uh, these white blood cells that are actually supposed to protect the body. Uh, but once typhoid is able to actually get inside of these cells, and lives in these macrophages uh, and actually replicates inside the macrophages, which is just another way for it to spread throughout the body without the body destroying uh, the bacteria itself. So if you're wondering about the illness, how long does it take? Uh, it's about 7 to 14 days. Uh, there's an asymptomatic period of initial inoculation with this Salmonella enterici uh, serotype typhi before it actually starts to cause disease. Uh, following the initial asymptomatic period, patients present with an influenza-like illness. So you'll have fevers, malaise. You'll also have abdominal symptoms, which are always present uh, and one of the hallmarks of this disease. Uh, and this is during the progression of the disease. And this includes a pain, nausea, vomiting, constipation, and of course, diarrhea. She's got diarrhea. As the disease progresses, uh, the patient may actually develop kind of intermittent confusion, and just a real apathetic affect. And that's when this disease was called typhi for the smokiness, that kind of smoky, that haziness that people get. This is where that came from, that confusion that people often get when they're actually acutely ill. Uh, there's also been associated bradycardia with it. So bradycardia, so when your heart slows down, you have a very slow heart rate. That's considered bradycardia. Uh, this can occur. doesn't happen all the time, but has been seen in typhoid fever. There is also uh, hepatomegaly, which is enlargement of your liver, and splenomegaly, which is enlargement of your spleen. And that's also typically seen in the uh, progression of this disease. People can also get things called rose spots, which are kind of a blanching little red rash and little lesions that are about two to four millimeters in diameter. Uh, they can develop usually on the chest and the abdomen of patients when they experience typhoid Further complications from typhoid fever may be a gastrointestinal hemorrhage that happens in about 10% of hospitalized patients. And that's kind of related to the necrosis uh, and erosion of those Peyer's patches we talked about when they become too enlarged. Uh, and this usually happens in the small bowel. In most of the cases, though, the bleeding can be self-limited. Uh, it doesn't require really any kind of intervention, um, although it can require some kind of gastrointestinal intervention if you have excessive bleeding. Uh, there is intestinal perforation that can also happen in about 2% of hospitalized patients. The uh, typhoid encephalopathy that we talked about, that kind of smokiness, that haziness that people get, uh, is also a symptom and a complication that comes with typhoid fever. And that can also include uh, agitation or delirium. And if it's left untreated, the patient can uh, enter a coma. Uh, even though their eyes may remain open, uh, it's almost a catatonic state, but they're unable to actually communicate. Uh, typhoid facies is another kind of name uh, for a characterization of a thin, flushed face that people have uh, with this kind of staring, apathetic expression. And that's also kind of when they're starting to develop this coma-like state. It is possible for people, even once they've had typhoid and recovered from it, just to have a relapse. It happens in about 10% of patients. And it usually happens two to three weeks after the initial resolution of the fever. So you could get the fever, do okay with it, you know, survive it, 
and then two to three weeks later just be sick again, have a complete relapse with it. As far as being able to diagnose if you have typhoid fever or not, if you've been to an endemic area and you come down with symptoms of fever, headache, malaise, all these things that might be hallmarks of this type of infection, uh, you can go and have lab work done. There's no single laboratory value unless you get a PCR test that will actually show that you have uh, salmonella typhi. Uh, to really get a confirmed diagnosis, you kind of have blood and stool cultures. Uh, whenever you can get those. If you're in some places third world, you might not have that availability. Uh, blood cultures, so that's where you take blood, put it in a culture medium, see what grows, and then from that growth you can actually kind of put it under a microscope and see what, uh, or run a PCR test and see what's growing. 40% uh, to 80% of blood cultures actually show some kind of positivity, so there's a good uh, Way to actually get a diagnosis from that. In stool cultures, you'll have about 30 to 40 percent uh, positive if you have uh, salmonella typhi in there. Uh, but stool cultures become less sensitive as your other symptoms arise uh, because you probably clear more of the actual bacteria out as you're having excessive diarrhea. Uh, the most sensitive diagnostic test uh, is actually a bone marrow aspirate, which hopefully you won't need. Uh, it's a little more invasive. They actually take a, a fairly large needle and jab it right into your hip. Uh, I've seen it done a few times and it's not very, it's not a fun procedure to watch and definitely not fun for the person having it done. Uh, more than 90% of the cultures um, are positive for bone marrow aspirates. So it's, you know, pretty good indicator if you really, or it's a good way to actually tell if you have it, but Definitely not the, the most pleasant way to obtain diagnostic material. Um, people who have been infected with typhoid fever can actually stay positive for days after they start antibiotics as well. Uh, as far as treatments go, so there are a number of treatments. There's actually vaccines available. So there are two vaccines that have been used for a long time. And I think there was a newer vaccine that actually just came out in 2017 and this is one that the WHO has actually been trying to get into areas that are endemic with it just to stop the spread of typhoid fever. And of course, there are antibiotics. Uh, antibiotics have been used for a long time, well, I mean, a relative long time, uh, to actually treat salmonella and terakai. The first antibiotic that was used uh, was actually called, see if I can get this right, chloramphenicol. Uh, but it was actually only after about two years that uh, typhoid became resistant to this, and they started having issues using uh, this antibiotic to treat it. Currently, though, uh, ciprofloxacin or ofloxacin, a couple of antibiotics, have become kind of mainstay treatments and kind of the gold standard. Uh, these aren't always safe to use in kids, but usually uh, it, it's the safest for children, I guess, when dealing with typhoid fever and kind of acceptable to use for severe infections. Um, there have been cases, of course, of resistance to these antibiotics as well. Uh, as we use antibiotics more and more, we have more and more issues with these superbugs, uh, bacteria that actually have longer lasting resistances or gain resistance to these medications. And I may actually devote an episode or maybe even just a, a short segment of an episode and kind of talk about superbugs. Um, and maybe even try and get like one of the docs that I work with to kind of explain them a little bit and try and give a little bit of insight into exactly what it is uh, that makes a superbug and how we actually treat them in the hospital. Anyway, uh, 
when there is resistance that's identified with one of these antibiotics, uh, they'll try a kind of an extended spectrum or broad spectrum cephalosporin, such as ceftriaxone. Uh, and that can be used as well as the antibiotic azithromycin. So let's get into a little bit of the epidemiology here of typhoid fever. So uh, salmonella, you know, in general, it's more deadly in children and older adults. Uh, and typhoid fever, more common in children and young adults. And it's actually associated with low income, uh, poor areas, third world areas where sanitation is prevalent. Uh, interestingly enough, there was some concern over the last few years. There's been a large issue with uh, homelessness in the West Coast. So L.A., Seattle, Portland, Oregon, where I used to live. Uh, large homeless encampments, um, oftentimes very unsanitary, uh, don't use facilities, uh, don't have clean water. And there was concern that there may be an outbreak of typhoid fever in anyone or multiple of these homeless camps just because of these poor sanitary conditions. Uh, don't have any cases to date that I can actually, or data to date, that there's any significant rise in typhoid fever. Uh, at the same time, it's been a concern that I've heard by more than one medical professional that it could be an issue uh, just based on the unsanitary conditions that these camps usually have. So typhoid fever, uh, it's usually contracted by ingestion of food or water that's contaminated with the excrements of people that carry the organism, so poopies. Uh, an infectious dose of salmonella, enterocci, it's usually between a thousand and a million organisms, uh, but that kind of depends on the you know host defense mechanism. So if you have somebody who's immunocompromised, it will not take as much. But just to you know, think about a thousand to a million organisms, when you're thinking about how small bacteria is, that's not a lot. So you're not talking about a large amount uh, of this bacteria that is needed to actually cause this infection. Uh, so typhoid fever, it happens worldwide, uh, as I said, primarily in developing or third world countries. Uh, it's endemic in Asia, in Africa, Latin America, the Caribbean. About 80% of cases, though, come from Bangladesh, China, India, Indonesia, Laos, Nepal, Pakistan, or Vietnam. So a majority of these cases come from a you know, select number of countries. And it, there is an interesting dichotomy in some of these countries when you think about China. Uh, you know, it's a world economy. It has a lot of areas that are actually very technologically advanced. But because it is such a large space and because there is such a you know, odd distribution of wealth, a lot of people don't have access to clean water. Uh, same with India uh, and Indonesia. So... Depending where you live, uh, it's you know, have and have not, uh, and that you know is part of clean drinking water and sanitary uh, conditions when it comes to toileting as well. Uh, typhoid fever infects about roughly 21.6 million people every year, and it actually kills about 200,000 people every year, uh, even today. Even today with uh, antibiotics, the medical treatment that we have, uh, access to clean drinking water, uh, so it just goes to show that there are still a lot of people that actually don't have these, uh, what we would consider first world amenities, I guess. Just the, the clean drinking water in and of itself is something that we probably all take for granted. Uh, and if you were somewhere, you know, Indonesia or India and you didn't have that, uh, could be a, you know, a big issue. Not just from a, you know, survival issue, but also from an infection control issue. 
Uh, as far as the United States, most cases of typhoid fever actually happen in international travelers. Uh, you don't see a lot of it uh, domestic. It's usually people who have been to countries that where it's endemic. They've gone, visited, and they end up getting it. Uh, people who do travel, typically they'll get a vaccine or they'll be recommended to have a vaccine if they're going to be traveling to a nation or an area where typhoid fever is endemic. So there's also a issue of probably underrepresentation of how many people get it every year, just because it may go undiagnosed, especially in these areas where you don't have access to good health care and don't have accurate data recording. Uh, so it could be even more than the 21.6 million people that are infected, and it may kill even more than 200,000 per year, but for right now, it's kind of the best estimate that they have. Um, in the U.S., though, we see 200 to 300 cases of typhoid fever per year. This is per the CDC, and 80% of those cases per the CDC are from travelers who have gone to an endemic area. I do want to bring up uh, recently typhoid in the news. Uh, there was recently an outbreak of a multi-drug resistant salmonella typhi. It was actually linked to uh, chocolate. Uh, anybody likes kinder chocolate, uh, you might want to stay away from some of it. Uh, this happened in the UK, uh, predominantly in the UK, but there have been a few other cases traced around the world. Uh, but 324 people recently were sickened. Uh, it was in Europe and the UK. 86% of them are among children who are younger than 10. Uh, there's actually 41% of them were hospitalized. Uh, there have been no deaths reported so far from it, uh, but uh, most investigations kind of led back to uh, Kinder chocolate products that were made at a Belgian processing plant. Uh, there was a subsequent investigation. It found that uh, about 81 samples from this plant actually tested positive for salmonella typhi. Uh, and it was actually from the buttermilk they were using. So, needless to say, that uh, processing plant has been shut down, and uh, European CDC is still warning there could be a lot of cases that actually still pop up from chocolate that had been shipped out prior to that. And uh, Kinder, you know, they ship it all over the world, so you could see cases pop up uh, here and there and, and everywhere. Uh, but all the products from that plant have been withdrawn, sorry, not withdrawn, but recalled, uh, and everything in the plant, the plant's been shut down, um, and I'm assuming they'll hopefully clean it and get back to making chocolate. Uh, from this, though, as I said before, there have been a few additional cases besides the ones in Europe that they've traced this to. I guess there's a couple in the U.S., uh, Canada, and Switzerland. So let's do a little bit of history real quick. Um, of typhoid fever. Uh, we'll end the history of typhoid fever with uh, everybody's uh, favorite at-home chef, Typhoid Mary. Uh, we'll talk a little bit about her, her uh, significance, not only to typhoid fever, but uh, just as far as uh, sanitation in general when it comes to preparing food for other people. I always thought it was pretty interesting. So let's get started with a little bit of history here. Uh, some historians think that typhoid fever is actually responsible for a huge plague that happened uh, in Athens back in 430 BC. This is kind of the first recorded uh, mass casualty event that they link typhoid fever to. Uh, killed about one-third of a population, and including the leader of the time, Persilis. Uh, his successor, Thulicides, also got the same disease, but it didn't kill him. Uh, there is thought that the Jamestown colony, uh, 
settlers between 1607 and 1604 settled in Jamestown. Uh, it was an English colony in Virginia, and it was uh, kind of a mystery colony because people were there, then people weren't. Uh, and there is actually some uh, belief that typhoid fever came in and wiped about 6,000 people out and kind of got rid of the entire colony between, you know, that, so I guess it was probably through 1624. But uh, there's links to Jamestown that people think typhoid fever may have wiped that out. Uh, military encampments were widely, widely known as vectors for typhoid fever. Uh, there is belief that about 80,000 soldiers died of typhoid fever or dysentery during the Civil War. Uh, if anybody's ever seen any kind of reenactments of the Civil War, looked at the movies, uh, I'm trying to think, there's uh, there was Glory, but there was also another one. Oh, I can't remember the name of it. It's about a, a Civil War prison camp, but it's the conditions there. I mean, it's awful. They're literally living in poop. Andersonville, that's the name of it. Andersonville, great movie. Anyway, uh, also, uh, during the history here, so there was uh, one of the deadliest outbreaks in U.S. history actually happened in 1903. Uh, this was in Ithaca, New York. It caused 82 deaths, and 29 of them were actually Cornell University students. Uh, so Ithaca's public water, which people use obviously for drinking and cooking, uh, became polluted with typhoid fever, or salmonella typhi, when uh, the Six Mile Creek Dam was being built. So I guess the water utility company, uh, when they were building it, they actually put their outhouse pretty close to the stream, uh, but not everybody used the outhouse. I guess there were a lot of people who were actually using the stream as well. Uh, so it happened that a lot of the workers were also immigrants who came from countries where typhoid fever was still endemic. This got into the water supply, and uh, as, uh, as we've kind of learned, once your water's contaminated with this, pretty easy to infect a lot of people with it. Uh, so, as the old saying goes, you know, never shit where you eat. Lastly, in the history of typhoid fever, we will talk about our dear friend, Typhoid Mary. So, it should be noted that uh, with typhoid fever, about 1-5% to 5 of people will actually become chronic carriers of typhoid, despite getting treatment for it, even with antibiotics. Uh, these chronic carriers, they continue to excrete the bacteria in their excrement, uh, and their urine for almost up to 12 months for acute infections afterwards. So they can still spread this even after being treated. Interestingly enough, they're usually typically of the female gender, or they have uh, cholestiasis, which are gallstones. So the most famous, obviously, is our friend Mary Mallon. Oh, Mary. Mary Mallon. She was diagnosed as a healthy carrier. Uh, this is in 1906, after she'd actually transmitted the disease to several, several households in the New York area where she served as a cook. Um, the term Typhoid Mary became pretty prominent during the public health campaigns after this, and it's actually still used in modern culture today. So a little background on our friend Mary. Uh, Mary Mallon, she was born in Ireland in 1869. She came to the United States in like 1883-1884, so she was still very young. Uh, she was actually engaged in 1906 as a cook by the Charles Henry Warren family. Uh, he was a wealthy New York banker. Uh, they rented a residence in Oyster Bay, Long Island. Um, and from August 27th to the 3rd of September, six of the 11th people in the house 
became ill with typhoid fever. So at this time, there still weren't uh, antibiotic treatments for this. Uh, the treatments they did have really weren't that effective. Mortality rate was about 10%. So if you got sick with this, it was still a pretty deadly disease. Uh, after these people got sick, there was actually an investigation by a quote-unquote sanitary engineer. Uh, they first thought that it was freshwater clams that could have caused these illnesses. Uh, but after a little while, a little more investigation was done. Uh, and Mary, who kind of presented with a moderate form of typhoid fever, uh, you know, still continued to host the bacteria. She was contaminating everything around her. So while she was cooking for all these people, spreading it to everyone, uh, and the sanitary engineer kind of stumbled upon that, figured that out, and kind of pinpointed Mary as the source for this. Uh, so after discovering Miss Mary Mallon was spreading the illness, she was actually, they tried to force her into quarantine. She didn't want to go into quarantine. She refused to have stool samples taken, refused to have any kind of laboratory work done. She was kind of like, screw you, uh, you know, I, this couldn't be me, didn't want this done. They eventually forced her out, though. So, uh, Mary had previously cooked for about eight families. Seven of them had experienced cases of typhoid. There were 22 people who presented with signs of infection, and some of them actually died. So, and it should be noted that in 1906, there were about 3,000 New Yorkers who were infected by Salmonella typhi, so... There's a good chance that uh, Mary may have been, she probably wasn't patient zero for all this, but her spreading it around to other people and they spread it to somebody else, she was at least cause for some of it. Uh, there is, uh, so she was eventually forced into quarantine. So um, she kind of gave in, submitted stool samples, confirmed her typhoid diagnosis. They actually offered to remove her gallbladder. Uh, but she denied this surgery, didn't want that. Um, she was also treated with uh, hexamethylamine, laxatives, urotropin, and brewer's yeast, which are all kind of, you know, half-assed ways to try and treat typhoid fever at the time, most of them which didn't work. Obviously didn't work with her. Uh, but after a few years in quarantine in 1910, uh, a new health commissioner actually came in, thought that Mary wasn't treated justly, and actually kind of freed her, uh, got her out of quarantine, helped her find suitable employment, uh, once again working uh, as a domestic cook, but, uh, or I shouldn't say that, she's working as a domestic, so they set Mary Mallon up as a maid, uh, with the stipulation that she didn't cook, uh, but Mary, uh, Mary didn't follow those guidelines, Mary went on to cook anyway, uh, started working again, uh, and uh, she actually changed her name to, I think, to Mary Brown, uh, since uh, she had already been stigmatized by, as Mary Mallon, as Typhoid Mary, so it was kind of created a whole new identity for her. But uh, went on, uh, she actually worked as a cook for Sloan Maternity in Manhattan, uh, and there she went and contaminated, within a period of three months, uh, 25 more people, including doctors, nurses, and staff. Two of those people died. Um, even after that, though, she still went on to work more, uh, spread around her typhoid. Uh, eventually, she was placed back on North Border Island, uh, where she stayed until she died. So, uh, Mary Mallon, or Typhoid Mary, caused numerous deaths, caused countless infections, and who knows how many other infections, the infections that she caused... Uh, counted, just to spread the kind of, you know, patient zero, and then 
uh, how many other people spread that to other people to other people and just kept going. Uh, 1906, the, those years after, typhoid fever was still a huge issue in New York. Uh, she did die in 1938, though. Um, there was a, a posthumous autopsy done on her, and it actually found that her typhoid infection was coming from her gallbladder. She had gallstones. So if she'd actually just accepted that surgery to have her gallbladder removed, she would have stopped spreading typhoid to everybody, and most people probably would have forgotten about her. But uh, to this day, Typhoid Mary is still considered somebody just a kind of bringer of death. And there have been, I don't know, countless movies, comic books, songs, all kinds of other stuff written about Typhoid Mary. Uh, so it just goes to show that uh, even someone who's been dead for almost a hundred years, their legend still lives on when they have some kind of link to a, a major pathogen. So uh, by the time she died, I guess there were about 400 other healthy carriers of Salmonella typhi that had been identified but nobody else was forced into kind of any kind of quarantine. So there have been issues when looking back on Typhoid Mary or Mary Mallon, uh, if she was just the ethical treatment, uh, you know, ethics in the early 1900s. I mean, we could talk for hours about, uh, you know, just the conditions that uh, even children went through working in orphanages and uh, packing plants is you know not the not a great time for ethics in any scope but especially in medicine Mary was kind of uh, made a martyr almost uh, pushed to the side and uh, there has been debate of whether or not she was actually treated ethically well so that's our friend typhoid Mary kind of in a nutshell uh, there may be some bits and pieces that I'm missing but that's kind of that, that's the story that I found so now that that's said and done, we'll get to everybody's favorite part. Uh, we'll kind of get to the death toll the typhoid fever has caused. Uh, once again, I mean, I don't know. I can't go back from the beginning of time and calculate exactly how many people. Uh, I think it would, it, it's hard to say. Uh, but what I will do is uh, I'm going to take today's best estimate where there are about 200,000 deaths per year still associated, still, <coughs> excuse me, associated with typhoid fever. Um, we'll kind of start, uh, you know, it's been suspected as far back as 460 BC, but I'm not going to go back that far. I'll actually start with the first, uh, first notice that I could find in medical literature, which was by English physician Thomas Willis in his Treatise on Fevers, which occurred in 1643. So if we take the year 1643, uh, about 200,000 deaths per year. And, you know, this may be more, it may be less, especially the world's population is larger now. But at the same time, we didn't have any kind of really antibiotic treatment until the last hundred years. So there may be some give and take. I don't know. That's what I'm going to use, though. So it's about 377 years. So 200,000 at 377, we get 75,400,000 deaths by typhoid fever. So if we take that total... Use the average height of a man or woman today, 5 foot 5 inches, we'll use that average height. We get the distance of about 408,416,667 feet, or 77,351.6 miles. So, the moon is 300, I'm sorry, 238,900 miles away. 
So if we stack these bodies head to toe, uh, we could actually come about one-third of the way to the moon, which is pretty crazy. Uh, as far as the Empire State Building goes, the Empire State Building's 1,454 feet. Uh, we could actually get 280,891 Empire State Buildings with all the people who have died from typhoid fever. And if we want to try and wrap the Earth with these corpses, uh, we could actually wrap the Earth 3.11 times with the amount of people that have died of typhoid fever. And like I said, this is just going back to 1643, but that's using that 200,000 deaths per year estimate. So, needless to say, uh, typhoid fever still remains pretty deadly pathogen today. Uh, it's still an issue, uh, still endemic in a large majority of the world. Uh, so, just want everybody to remember, uh, wash your hands, don't poop where you eat, uh, and always uh, give me any feedback. Email me, uh, sickpod at gmail.com. Always willing to take suggestions for future episodes. I know Officer Belinsky said I should probably have a few shots before I do this and loosen up a little bit. Um, I would love to do that, but uh, hopefully each episode gets a little bit better. Uh, Hopefully it's easier to listen to as far as just a production value. But I uh, hope everybody enjoyed this. And uh, as always, uh, take care and I'll see you next episode. She's got diarrhea. <laughs>